My next guest is American writer, historian, actor and essayist whose acid wit has made him a hugely popular and indeed unpopular commentator. I like Gore when he's on this show. He says what is on his mind. Mr. Vidal has become a cultural icon. Prolific American novelist, playwright, screenwriter, historian, essayist. Conversationalist, actor, humorist and sometime political candidate. Would you welcome please Mr. Gore Vidal. From We Own This Town, this is Vidalatry, a look at the wit and wisdom in the spoken words of Gore Vidal. I'm Ryan Briegel. After his third novel, The Scandalous, The City and the Pillar, was published in 1948, the New York Times refused to review any novel by Gore Vidal for the foreseeable future, and Gore began worrying about how he was going to make a living. He knew he had to either write novels under a different name or write for another industry entirely. In the end, he chose to do both. He would go on to write three mystery novels under the pen name Edgar Box, to which the New York Times gave rave reviews. Then, in 1954, he began writing television plays, one-hour dramas about crumbling Louisiana dynasties and murderous wives with split personalities. This television work would lead to a job in Hollywood, where Gore was tasked with repairing a disastrous screenplay for a big-budget film, where we find him secretly sneaking in a gay subplot under the nose of the film's homophobic lead actor. The older he got, Gore's extreme confidence in his opinions often led him to state his views as facts, which, if you happen to disagree with him, can be infuriating. In 1967, CBS aired the first major network documentary on the gay lifestyle. Three years in the making, the program was called The Homosexuals. The Homosexuals, with CBS News correspondent Mike Wallace. And yes, it was brave of CBS to give visibility to a group of people who were used to living in the shadows. But the light it shone was not entirely positive. For instance, it begins with host Mike Wallace revealing the results of a survey conducted especially for the news report. In preparing this broadcast, CBS News commissioned a survey by the Opinion Research Corporation into public attitudes toward homosexuality. We discovered that Americans consider homosexuality more harmful to society than adultery, abortion, or prostitution. What a way to begin. So what's the point of revisiting this outdated time capsule, documenting society's narrow-minded view of the homosexual lifestyle, you ask? Is there anyone who can speak on the subject with a little common sense? Luckily, they chose to interview Gore Vidal. It is as natural to be homosexual as it is to be heterosexual. And the difference between a homosexual and a heterosexual is about the difference between somebody who has brown eyes and somebody who has blue eyes. Who says so? I say so. It is a completely natural act from the beginning of time. Seems to me that there are a lot of features of ordinary life which are enormously exaggerated in homosexual life. The opposing view is brought to us by Albert Goldman, who at the time was a professor of English at Columbia University and responsible for the school's first class on popular culture. I mean, the kind of jealousy and rage and promiscuity that is just inherent in the homosexual life, where you cannot have marriage, really, and where you cannot have children, and where you don't have all the stabilizing influences. 
Goldman would later be known for writing biographies on Elvis Presley and John Lennon, which many felt were full of inaccuracies. Supposedly shocking revelations meant to sell more books, and Gore himself referred to Goldman's writing as bioporn. You may know Bono's reference to Goldman in the U2 song God Part Two from Rattle and Hum, where he sings, Don't believe in Goldman, his type like the curse. Instant karma's gonna get him if I don't get him first, or if Gore doesn't. Uh, there's a theory which one reads all the time about how a certain uh, successful playwright, in a very successful play, uh, describes married people as uh, heterosexuals as being wicked and vicious and clawing at each other. And this is supposed to be really a story about uh, two homosexual couples. Well, homosexuals are, <laughs> they are wicked homosexuals and they're wicked heterosexuals. And uh, this is a playwright who deals in, uh, ex you know, in savage and extreme situations. And I don't see any of it as being translatable, particularly as, as a heterosexual as a homosexual situation posing as heterosexual. And furthermore, if it were, then why is it popular? Obviously it's popular because what he has to say about married couples uh, speaks to everybody. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a certain homosexual playwright who has written the only really good women characters in American theater written by him. So he that the homosexual in some way is this person trying to, uh, uh, to absolutely destroy the family structure of the United States. Nonsense. Here Gore speaks of two playwrights to make his point. The second is undoubtedly his friend Tennessee Williams, who we will hear more about at a later date. But he first references Edward Albee, author of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a popular play about a quarrelsome husband and wife who get a kick out of pulling an unsuspecting younger couple into their own twisted fights. Written in 1962, it was later made into a film starring Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Gore is recalling a theory that was going around at the time that the married couple in the play, George and Martha, were meant to represent a homosexual couple, that their bitter, self-destructive union was actually Albee's criticism of gay relationships, to which Albee repeatedly replied, bullshit, and we see that Gore appears to believe him. By 1956, Gore himself had moved from writing one-hour television plays to full-length film adaptations for Hollywood. MGM offered him a permanent contract which allowed the film studio to assign Gore to whatever projects they chose. And if this sounds like a bad idea, that's because it was. Gore hated the studio system which allowed an editor to change a film in its final stages of production, and the screenwriter could do nothing about it. But in the spring of 1958, Gore received an offer that gave him a way out. MGM was not doing well financially, and a big-budget remake of the 1925 film Ben-Hur was thought to be the studio's last chance. They felt they were at least on the right track when they signed Charlton Heston to play the title role. Heston's portrayal of Moses two years before had made Paramount's film The Ten Commandments a huge success and MGM was hoping to do the same with Ben-Hur. The only problem, the script written by Carl Tunberg just wasn't working for anyone. Attempts were made to produce a better script by additional writers, but director William Wyler hated what had been delivered so far. The issue was this. The two lead characters harbor an intense hatred for each other, 
but there was nothing in the script to explain where this emotion came from. Producer Sam Zimbalist needed a writer who could conjure up a motivation for all this rage. Luckily, he knew Gore Vidal. When presented with an offer to work on the script, Gore was intrigued. He thought it would speed up his release from the MGM contract, which he said felt like a life sentence. But he also saw an interesting way they could develop the main characters, as he explains in an interview for the documentary The Celluloid Closet. Well, you got very good at uh, projecting subtext without saying a word about what you were doing. And her and uh, Masala, one Jewish, one Roman, had known each other in youth. They disagree over politics, and now they hate each other for the next three hours. Well, that isn't much to put a whole three-hour movie on, even something as uh, gorgeously junky as Ben-Hur. The director of the movie, William Wyler, said, what do you do? And I said, well, look, let me try something. Let's say that these two guys, when they were 15, 16, when they last saw each other, they had been lovers, and now they're meeting again, and the Roman wants to start it up. Masala, played by Stephen Boyd, wants to start it up again with Ben-Hur, played by Charlton Heston, heaven knows why, but he does. Anyway, he's Roman. So, uh, Willie stared at me, face gray. And I said, well, I'll never use the word. There'll be nothing overt. But it'll be perfectly clear that Masala is in love with Ben-Hur. Willie said, Gore, this is Ben-Hur. A Tale of the Christ, I think, is the subtitle, he said, rather vaguely, looking around. And Willie finally said, well... It's certainly better than what we've got. We'll try it. He said, have you talked to anybody about this? And I said, no. He said, you talked to Boyd, Masala. Uh, don't say anything to Heston, because Chuck will fall apart. I'll take care of him. So Heston thinks he's doing Francis X. Bushman in a silent version. His head is always constantly on high like this and like this. And Stephen Boyd is acting it two pieces. There are looks that he gives him that are just so clear. Gore got Zimbalist to agree to free him from his MGM contract if Gore would go to Rome for three months and work with Weiler on the script. In the end, the original scriptwriter, Carl Tunberg, a former president of the Screenwriters Guild, won the sole credit for Ben-Hur. But even with his contributions going unnamed, Gore was able in his very sly way to continue what he began with The City and the Pillar his narrative of young love that is rekindled and results in a disastrous end. Was this Gore's way of coping with the loss of his friend Jimmy Trimble, his one true love? In September of 1950, Gore met Howard Austin, the man he would choose to live with for the rest of his life. They met at the Everard Baths, a gay bathhouse located at 28 West 28th Street in New York City, also known by its nickname Everhard. According to people that knew them well, Howard served as a grounding force in their relationship, keeping Gore's anecdotes from becoming too exaggerated. Gore and Howard were sexual at first, but early on they both agreed to allow sex to become a thing of the past, and Gore suggests that this decision is what allowed them to live together for 53 years, until Howard's death in 2003. In a 60 Minutes profile from 1975, Mike Wallace once again drops in to try and get at the heart of Gore's feelings on love, sex, 
and companionship. Well, I don't like the word love. It's like uh, patriotism. It's like the flag. It's the last refuge of scoundrels. When people start talking about what wonderful, warm, deep emotions they have, and they are loving people, I watch out. Somebody's going to steal something. The romantic love, as Americans uh, conceive it, does not exist, hence the enormous divorce rate, because whatever it is is sexual that first brings them together. When that cools, there's often not much left. Wallace continues by prodding at Gore's non-traditional, long-term relationship with Howard Austin. You've lived with a man for 23, 24 years. Yes. You have never been in love with him, nor are now. You are simply good companions. I'm not sure that I understand. Well, haven't I proved it by living with somebody for 24 years? That's obviously not being in love. If you're in love, that is something very intense and generally very brief, as it's been most people's experience. You don't live with the person you're in love with, I should think. At least I've known very few cases of it. You mean it's an arrangement of convenience for you? No, it just, uh, you, you live with a friend, that's all, which is something quite different from... Uh, having a grand passion or having a love affair. Well, you live with a friend, but you have, you have sexual uh, congress, if you will, uh, with, you, with an assortment of friends. No, uh, certainly. I'm devoted to promiscuity and always have been. I believe the more you do, the better it is for you. I'm a great health nut. And sex is, I think, absolutely marvelous uh, for the whole system. tones you up. You take a certain satisfaction in the fact that American attitudes about sex sexual liberation, sensuality, whatever, have yes. changed considerably, oh, particularly yes. in the last half dozen years. Yes, indeed, and I certainly am happy to take a good deal of credit for that. Unlike so many of the men at the time who felt they were forced to keep their same-sex practices hidden away, Gore Vidal was more than happy to detail his. But one can see how the boasting of his many gay conquests might come to haunt him later in life. Or, depending on how you look at it, would come to his aid during a very heated debate between Gore and one of the most clever enemies he would ever meet. Vidalatry is brought to you by We Own This Town, this episode was written and produced by me, with additional research by Josh Ruiz. You can find more information about this episode at vidolatry.com. I'm Ryan Briegel. Thank you for listening.